Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Tom Hartman, Countdown, and Rachel Maddow. I am sad and a little depressed about the president. And I'll tell you why. And you quoted Theodore Roosevelt today. Mm-hmm. It's kind of ironic. You know, uh, here was a great Republican, right? Yeah. And can I, I came across A two-term something. Republican president. Yes, I came across something that will absolutely trump everything anybody says, in my, in my judgment, absolutely trump uh, the Bush-Cheney tag team philosophy on the war. Okay, and here's what Theodore Roosevelt said. I'd like I'd just like to share it with everybody. Patriotism means to stand by the country. It does not mean to stand by the president or any public official, save exactly to the degree he himself stands by the country. Yeah, uh, well said. Well said, Gary. Thank you for sharing that. In fact, let me in in the same spirit share with you. Teddy Roosevelt. You, this, these are, this is a recording made by Thomas Edison himself of Theodore Roosevelt uh, right around 1910, 1912, uh, thereabouts, when, uh, when he was forming the Bull Moose Party. He's speaking about conservatives. I prefer to work with moderate, with rational conservatives, provided only that they do in good faith strive forward towards the light. But when they halt and turn their backs to the light, now, keep in mind, this was when the Republican Party, or at least a large faction of it, was progressive. And T- Teddy Roosevelt, when the, Repo- when the conservatives turned their back on the light, I part company with them. He continues. But the beneficiaries of privilege, the Bourbon reactionaries, the short-sighted ultra-conservatives turned down to a goal. He's talking about the short-sighted ultra-conservatives? Then found that instead of him, they had obtained rubbish. Uh, yeah, they they turn. He's talking about uh, they've they've inherited the French Revolution for all practical purposes. They've become radicals. They gained twenty years freedom from all restraint and reform at the cost of the whirlwind of the Red Terror, and in their turn, the unbridled extremists of the Terror induced a blind reaction. And so, with convulsion and oscillation from one extreme to another, with alternations of violent radicalism and violent bourbonism, the French people went through misery. He's talking about the, the French Revolution, how the, the French people went through this, this violent, horrible time, and how the conservatives of his era are trying to put America through the same thing. And I would say this vision has been realized in George W. Bush. This is Teddy Roosevelt, Republican President of the United States. They are ultra-conservatives remember that the rule of the Bourbons brought on the revolution. In other words, yeah, the, the rule of the Bourbons brought on the revolution. The, the, the right wing clamping down on the rights of people brought on the French Revolution. Friends, our task as Americans is to strive for social and industrial justice achieved through the genuine rule of the people. The, our role as Americans is to strive for justice. In our hearts, we must have this lofty purpose and to strive for it in all earnestness and sincerity, or our work will come to nothing. In order to succeed, we need leaders of inspired idealism, leaders to whom are granted great visions, who dream greatly and strive to make their dreams come true, who can kindle the people with the fire from their own burning souls. Leaders who dream great visions, 
who can inspire the people to make their dreams come true. I, that, that is so brilliant. Teddy Roosevelt, the, the Republican Roosevelt, not Franklin Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, the Republican Roosevelt, talking about his vision of America and his concern, his fear of what would happen if the conservatives, well, as the conservatives, were continuing to whipsaw America. John Dean has a new book out, by the way, in which he talks about this very issue, about the conservatives, these, these new conservatives. He, in fact, he dedicates the book to Barry Goldwater. He's going to be on our program on Friday. He, and he talks about, in his book, in, his new, in John Dean's new book, about how these, these phony conservatives, who Barry Goldwater even wouldn't recognize, are really essentially fascist reactionaries. I mean, uh, using my language, not his. And, and America really very much right now is standing at a junction point, at a turning point. And we, it's a, these are very, very dangerous and very important times. Perhaps the most important time for the United States in its history. Um, arguably outside of the Civil War in any case. And, and it is so important that we become politically engaged and that we become conscious, that we wake up to what's going on around us and share that with others. from New York. The same Republican congressman who last month claimed that the weapons of mass destruction that supposedly led to the U.S. invasion of Iraq had been found has now told President Bush that he may have broken the law by keeping parts of the NSA domestic spying program secret even from the lawmakers responsible for overseeing them. Our fifth story in the countdown, will those who found the Michigan Republican credible last month find him just as credible now? The White House's anger over the exposure of its clandestine intelligence programs now matched only by the anger of one of its staunchest allies, who is now saying that he has not heard enough. Peter Hoekstra, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, making his wrath known as far back as May 18th in a letter to the president that surfaced in the New York Times over the weekend. The Republican congressman questioning both the legality and the civility of the administration's conduct. Quoting, I have learned of some alleged intelligence community activities about which our committee has not been briefed. If these allegations are true, they may represent a breach of responsibility by the administration, a violation of the law, and just as importantly, a direct affront to me and the members of this committee who have so ardently supported efforts to collect information on our enemies. The U.S. Congress simply should not have to play 20 questions to get the information that it deserves under our Constitution. Representative Hoekstra expanding on his concerns over the weekend. We can't be briefed on every little thing that they are doing, but in this case, there, were at least, there was at least one major, what I consider, significant activity that we had not been briefed on, that we have now been briefed on, and I want to set the standard there that it is not optional for this president or any president or people in the executive community not to keep the intelligence committees fully informed of what they are doing. 
I'm joined now by Nixon White House Counsel John Dean, author of the new book, Conservatives Without Conscience, which hits bookstores officially on Tuesday. John, as always, great thanks for your time. Good to see you in person. Nice to see you, Keith. We, uh, we must and we will talk about this remarkable book, but given how much the modern conservative movement has meant or come to mean, either correctly or incorrectly, George W. Bush, let me ask you first about this lead story. Are you at all heartened by the idea that, that these men who are the president's allies in Congress, especially the more rabid ones like Mr. Hoekstra, the man who claimed that, that there were WMD found in Iraq that, we, as we know, date from 1991, that, that even they have begun some sort of pushback against the White House? Well, it's a glimmer. It's a glimmer of some institutional pride. Mm -hmm. uh, how deep it runs, I'm not sure yet. We've seen the same in the Senate where there's been an occasional push, but there doesn't seem to be any follow-up. So that's the real question, what happens next? If there will be any follow-up, I suspect not, Keith. Is it a, in terms of push? Is it a pushback that that owes to the the imminence of the midterm elections, or is it one that that has to do with a genuine imbalance of, of power? Is it political or constitutional? I think it depends upon the individual. With Hookstra, I suspect there really is some committee pride that he's probably being pressured by others on his committee, on both sides, the Democrats and the Republicans. That hey, what's going on here? I'm sure he must have shared this internally with his committee, and there was probably a lot of distress. Uh, it's a committee that has a unique role to oversee the oversight of the intelligence community and was being denied that. When you get over in the Senate with somebody like uh, Arlen Specter on signing statements, he'll hold one day of hearings, but then the issue goes away. So that's why I say I don't know how deep it runs and I don't know how far these people are trying to actually distance themselves from the president given his bad ratings. It's interesting there was so much personal in that letter to, from Mr. Hoekstra to Mr. Bush that it, it, it seemed that there was as much offense taken that, uh, that he personally, Mr. Hoekstra, did not know what, what Mr. Bush's people were doing as any violation of law there. Is this, does this sort of segue us into the topic of the book, that there's, 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 there's way too much personal going on here rather than, than politically professional? Well, I think, you know, the, the question is really whether it happened at the presidential level, level or the vice presidential level. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of these efforts to withhold information from the, the Congress are really coming out of Cheney's office. Uh, it may well be his office giving instructions, and the president might have, might have given Hookstra an assurance, hey, mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to give you everything I've got when I got it, and he might have been offended by that. So it, it's hard to tell. We don't have enough facts yet, but to seg into the uh, end of the book, uh, there certainly are a number of conservatives up there who uh, will march in lockstep when they get the word from the authority they are expected to follow. That would be the thesis of the book, and we'll go into that at length, but I wanted to start at the very beginning. You dedicated this book to Barry Goldwater. What would he, in your opinion, having known him and having dealt with him on these political issues, have thought of the current conservative movement as it has become? And what would the conservative movement have thought of him at this point? What do they think of him now? Well, that's it. I think right now we can say, in fact, I discussed this in the book, that uh, Goldwater Republicanism is really RIP. Mm. It's, it's, it's uh, been put to rest by most of the people who are now active in moving the, uh, the movement further to the right than it's ever been. I think the senator, before he departed, was very distressed with conservatism. Uh, in fact, it was our conversations uh, back in 1994 that started this book. It's really where I began. We wanted to find answers to the questions as to why Republicans were acting as they were, why conservatives had taken over the party and were being followed you know, as easily as they were in taking the party where he didn't think it should go. What did you find? 
In less than the 200 pages that the book goes into. I ran into a massive study that had really been going on for 50 years now by academics. They've never really shared this with the general public. It's a remarkable analysis of the authoritarian personality, both those who are inclined to follow leaders and those who jump in front and want to be the leaders. It was not the opinion of social scientists. It was information they drew by questioning large numbers of people, hundreds of thousands of people in anonymous testing where they conceded their innermost feelings and reactions to things. And it turned out that these people were, most of these that came out in the testing were people who had been pre-qualified to be conservatives and then they found that this indeed fit with the authoritarian personality. Does it really, do the studies indicate that it really has anything to do with the political point of view? Is it, would it be easier to, to essentially superimpose authoritarianism over the right than it would the left? Is it theoretically possible that they could have gone in, in either direction and it's, it's just a question of people who like to follow other people? They found, they have found really no, maybe a small 1% of the left who follow authoritarianism, mm. probably the far left. Uh, but as far as widespread testing, it is just overwhelmingly uh, conservative orientation. There is an extraordinary amount of academic work that you quote in the book. A lot of it is very unsettling. It deals with psychological principles that are frightening and that, that may have faced other nations at other times, and Germany and Italy in the 30s come into mind in particular. But. What, how does it apply now, and to what degree should it scare us, and to what degree is it, is it something that, 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 uh, that, that might still be uh, forestalled? Well, to me, it was something of an epiphany to run into this information. First, I'd never read about it before. I, I sort of worked my way into it until I found it. It's not generally known out there what's going on. And I think, from best we can tell, these people, the, the, the followers, a few of them will change their ways when they realize what they're doing. Not even aware of their behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, the leaders, those who are inclined to dominate, are not going to change a second. They're going to be what they are. So by and large, it, it, the, the reason I write about this is I think we need to understand it. We realize when you take a certain step and vote a certain way and head in a certain direction where this can end up. So it's sort of a cautionary note. Uh, it's a warning as to where this can go because other countries have gone there. And the idea of leaders and followers um, going down this path and perhaps taking a country with them requires, this whole edifice requires an enemy. Communism, Al-Qaeda, Democrats, me, whoever, <laughs> for the two minutes hate. I mean, there is, we overuse, I overuse the Orwellian analogies to nauseating proportions, but it really was in reading what, 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 what you wrote about, and especially what the academics talked about, there was that, that two minutes hate thing. There has to be an opponent, an enemy to coalesce around or the whole thing falls apart. Is that the gist of it? It, it is one of the things that, believe it or not, still holds conservatism together because there are many factions in conservatism mm -hmm. and, and their dislike or hatred of those they portray as liberal who will be anybody who basically disagrees with them is one of the cohesive factors. There are a few others, but that's, that's certainly one of the basic. There's no question that uh, the, particularly the followers, they're terribly, very aggressive in their in their effort to pursue and help their authority figure out or their authority beliefs out. Uh, they will 
do whatever needs to be done in many regards. Mm -hmm. They will blindly follow. They stay loyal too long. Uh, and this is the frightening part of it. Let me read something from the book. Let me read this one quote, then I have a question about it. Many people believe that neoconservatives and many Republicans appreciate that they are more likely to maintain influence and control of the presidency if the nation remains under ever-increasing threats of terrorism. So they have no hesitation in pursuing policy, policies that can provoke potential terrorists throughout the world. That's ominous, not just in the sense that authoritarians involved in conservatism and now republicanism would would uh, politicize counterterror here, which we've already argued right. that point on many many occasions. But th are you actually saying here that they would set up? Uh, encourage terrorism from other countries to set them up as a bogeyman to have again that's that's that group to hate here a group to be more importantly afraid of here what I'm saying is that there has been fear-mongering the likes of which we have not seen in a long time in this country if it happened early in the Cold War we got accustomed to it we learned to live with it we learned to understand what it was about and get it in proportion we haven't done that yet with terrorism mm -hmm. and this administration is really capitalizing on it and using it for its political advantage no question the academic testing shows the empirical evidence shows that when people are frightened they tend to go to these authority figures they tend to become more conservative so it's paid off for them politically to do this this all seems to require not merely venality or immorality, but a kind of amorality, where morals don't enter into it at all. We're right. So anything we do to preserve our uh, process, our power, even if it by itself is wrong, it's right in the greater sense. It's that wonderful rationalization that, that everybody uses in small doses throughout their lives. But is this, is this idea, this sort of psychological review of the whole thing. Does it apply to Dick Cheney? Does it apply to George Bush? Does it apply to Bill Frist? Who are the names on these authoritarian figures? Well, you just named three that I discuss in some length in the, in the book. I focused in the book not on the Bush administration and, and Cheney and, and, uh, and the president, but I, because they really uh, have been there, done that. But I, what I wanted to understand is the, what they have done is they've made it legitimate to have authoritarianism. It was already operating on Capitol Hill. Uh, after the 94 uh, control by the Republicans of the Congress, uh, it, it recreated the mood. It restructured the Congress itself in a very authoritarian style in the House in particular. The uh -huh. uh, Senate hasn't gone there yet, but it's, it's, it's going there because more House members are moving over. Uh, this atmosphere is what Bush and Cheney walked into. They are authoritarian personalities, uh, Cheney much more so than Bush, yeah. uh, and they have, they have made it legitimate and they have taken it way past where anybody's ever taken it in the United States. Our society's best defense against that is what? Do we have to uh, hope that, as you suggested, the people who follow uh, wise up and break away from this, the lock, sort of lockstep salute, to, well, of course they're right, of course there's WMD, of course they're terrorists, of course there's Al-Qaeda, of course everything is, is, is the way the president says it, or do we rely on the hope that these are fanatics and fanatics always screw up because they would rather believe in their own uh, cause than double check their own math? The, the lead researcher in this field told me, he said, I look at the numbers in the United States and I see about 23% of the population mm -hmm. who are pure right-wing authoritarian followers. They're not going to change. They're going to march over the cliff. Uh, the best thing to deal with them, and they're growing, and they, they have a tremendous influence on Republican politics. Uh, the best thing... The best defense is understanding them, to realize what they're doing, how they're doing it, and how they operate. 
then it can be kept in perspective, then they can be seen for what they are. Did any of this ring familiar to you from the Nixon administration, or, or is this a different world? No, I must say that uh, about everything that went wrong with Watergate, you could really count to authoritarianism as well. Mm -hmm. Give me an example. The, in other words, not getting away with it was the was, was a result of it too. Take take Gordon Liddy and his following whatever Nixon wants, even the hint of anything he wants. Salute, mm -hmm. yes sir, let's do it. And the story that he uh, has told about you and, and and you've told about him about him saying I have all this knowledge in my brain that uh, could bring the president of the United States down, tell me to go and stand on a corner, and what was the rest of it? Tell me where you want me shot. He said, I don't want you shooting me on my house because I've got children, but shoot me on a street corner. That's a, a loyal right-wing authoritarian follower in action at the extreme. You've been a historian. You've been a part of history. You've been to the cent one of the central moments of history in the 20th century. What kind of danger are we, are we, are we facing a legitimate threat to the concept of democracy in this country? I don't think we're in a fascist road right now. Mm -hmm. We are so close to it, though, Keith. That's why I wrote the book, because I want people to understand exactly what is going on and why it's going on. It is an extraordinary document. Uh, all the best with it. John Dean, former counsel, White House counsel to Richard Nixon, author of the new book, Conservatives Without Conscience. As always, sir, great. Thanks for coming in. Dean is with us. He has a new book out, Conservatives Without Conscience. He's the author of the national bestseller, Worse Than Watergate. In fact, when that book came out, it was the last time we spoke. John Dean, glad to have you back on the program. Thanks, Tom. Pleasure, uh, pleasure to be with you again. This, this is an extraordinary piece of work. Uh, I, should, I, should, I'm, I'm, I almost probably don't have to say it. John Dean, the former uh, counsel to Richard Nixon, a Watergate figure, and uh, I'm not sure how you would most prefer to be uh, described in that context but uh, the uh, I, I this the, the the book that you've written exploring the roots of not just the modern conservative movement but how it has taken this authoritarian bend first of all let me just in 1964 you did talk about Barry Goldwater in the book in 1964 I was 13 years old and I went door to door for Barry Goldwater did you? my father was uh, the chairman of the Republican Party in the county that we lived in in Michigan and and uh, you know I was very into it I had read John Stormer's none dare call it treason uh, I'd read J Edgar Hoover's book that you you reference you know <laughs> the masters of deceit uh, you know I, I you know I was just gung-ho and uh, within three years you know I was on a college campus and and looking at the Vietnam War and and it completely uh, transformed my vision of, of politics, and I went from being a conservative to being whatever uh, you, I, I call myself a progressive today. And and I'm, you know, I'm it's kind of curious if if Goldwater would have won, it might have been a lot better for the country than Johnson pursuing and escalating that war. <laughs> I don't disagree with you. And in fact, uh, two years ago, I went back and I reread No Apologies, Goldwater's second right. autobiography. 
And it was clear to me that he was blinded by his fear of communism to the point that it, it uh, didn't allow him to, to see the horrible mistake he was making, for example, in opposing the civil rights movement because he thought King had been infiltrated by the communists. But beyond that, he was a good man with a, you know, with a reasonable vision for America. Um, and, and, you know, you portray in your book the, the classic kind of Goldwater conservatives. In fact, you dedicate the book to Barry Goldwater, as I recall. I do. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious, how would you portray liberalism? Because you, and I want to get into the whole thing about authoritarianism and, and everything else that's in the book, but, but this is something that I didn't get out of the book in, in, in reading through. Maybe I just missed it. But uh, it seems to me that the liberal worldview is really the one that came out of the Enlightenment, that, you know, George Washington said that he was a liberal. He hoped America would ever become more liberal. How is that different from the type of conservatism that you applaud in the book? Well, I think if you track what I did and show how uh, I try to show in the roots of conservatism when they, when the intellectual movement started, uh, they really corrupted the basic documents of the founding of the country and called them conservative documents when they were truly classic liberal documents. Uh, and Barry Goldwater, uh, for one, has often said that when people look back on his era and his thoughts and his philosophy, they would call him a liberal, uh, which is kind of curious. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, liberalism runs throughout the book. Uh, I actually put a footnote in at one point to note really probably the greatest distinction between contemporary liberalism and conservatism resides in equality. The liberal still is very uh, much for equality. Uh, conservatives really don't give a hoot about equality. Uh, and that's, that's the interesting thing. I had some conversation with the senator about that also. He said, well, yes, uh, those are the guys who, do, you know, the, the conservatives who, who, who don't care about equality are the ones who don't get elected. Uh, mm. That was once true. I'm not so sure it's true anymore. Well, in, in the book, you quote Russell Kirk, and I've read The Conservative Mind, and, and, and Kirk, of course, bases that book, the whole entire first chapter, is about uh, Sir Edmund Burke. And uh, Kirk talks about how conservatives, in, in classic conservatism, you have classes and orders rather than equality. Burke said, you know, it does me no harm if a man uh, is allowed to engage in his servile profession as a hairdresser or a tallow maker, candle maker, but it does society considerable violence if such a man is allowed to participate in, in governance, in other words, to vote. Um, Fairly elitist view, I'd say. <laughs> it is, but it, but but William F. Buckley read, you know, the conservative mind and said, "Yeah, that's me." I mean, even Barry Goldwater did, and and well, actually, you know, he didn't. Uh, Goldwater, uh, he, I'll tell you, the greatest influence on Goldwater was probably Herbert Hoover. Uh, he was a collector of all of Hoover's works. He got to know him after he got in the Senate, and he that if he had an intellectual mentor, that was it because. Mm-hmm. Uh, the senator had not been much of a student until he really got to Washington. That he spent the first ten years in the Senate really steeping himself in this stuff. Uh, and I don't ever—I never thought him as a Burkean uh, by yeah. any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, and and in fact, in the in the book, you you talk about a conversation that you had with Barry Goldwater in his last days. Uh, you mind sharing that with us? That that was a, I thought a, a, a great. Uh, a great moment there where you're talking to him about, you said, I, I called Senator Goldwater to only recently learn more about Chuck Colson's involvement with Silent Coup. Oh, yeah, the, when we're talking about Liddy. Yeah. 
<laughs> and and just the whole Christian conservative, uh, you know, takeover. Yes. Well, you know, I, 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 the. Um... Uh, I'm not sure exactly which conversation you're referring to because I, I actually footnote several of them in there. Yeah. But the senator uh, and I really, uh, he was miffed and mystified. I was mystified as to what had happened to conservatism. And that's where, in 1994, this is where this, this book really started. And then originally we were going to co-author it because he said, let's go out and find the answers. He said, I've got contacts, you've got contacts, i got papers, you've got papers. Let's put it all together and see if we can figure this riddle out. I said, fine, I'm for it. Uh, unfortunately, his health wasn't very good, and I could see the book was going to be a, a burden on him. So I said, let's put this on the shelf till you're feeling better. He said, fine, we'll do that, and, and, but uh, let's not drop it. And unfortunately, he never did get healthier. And when he passed away, I said, I, I'm just not going to drop this project. Mm -hmm. And indeed, uh, did find the answers. Yeah, well, this is the conversation where he said, I'm concerned that the Republican Party is selling out its soul. Uh, selling the soul to the, uh, uh, to the religious right. He was very deeply concerned about that. He thought the religious right was highly divisive. He said, I, John, I've dealt with these people for years. The difficult, while I respect their thinking and their beliefs, uh, they just can't fit and understand the way government works. They are unyielding. They believe that they uh, have the uh, the imprimatur of God in, in, in implementing their policies, and they will not compromise on those policies and beliefs. And he said it just makes an impossible situation because government is a process of, and politics is a process of compromise. Uh, this troubled him deeply that uh, they were, you know, slowly gaining increasing control of the Republican Party. You talk in the book about Stanley Milgram's work, and I, I you, in, in the book you say when Milgram invited me to speak at his conference, I, I thought he was dead. I, this, not then. He yeah. was very much alive when I met him. <laughs> yeah, he, he, so, this yeah. was back in 1976, though. In 76, he, is, he, is, okay. he, he did die prematurely, and uh, yeah. Bob Altmaier, who I also mentioned in the book, says, you know, without question, Milgram was probably one of the greatest social scientists this country's ever seen. Underappreciated, you know, ground breaking stuff he did. Yeah, these were the famous experiments where he ordered people, had people in white coats ordering people to give electric shocks to other people, uh, all the way up to the point where they thought they might be at risk of killing the other person, and 65% of ordinary people were willing to do that. They, they were people solicited off the streets of New Haven, and they came in, and, and they were in this lab setting that had sort of the aura of science about it, and an authority figure was giving them directions. Of course, the, the learner who they were shocking, who uh, was given a little jolt every time they failed to remember uh, word pairs, was actually an actor uh, who was in on this experiment, and the person who was being tested was the, the person who was giving the jolts of electricity to see how far the authority figure could push them, and they pushed them to the 450 volts on regular basis. Right. Which is, and, and with the other person, the acting learner, screaming often. Uh, yet these people, uh, and, and Milgram makes a very interesting, I looked at this because I was trying to understand how do people who work at the CIA and know that they're, part of a system that, that is torturing people in the Eastern European secret prisons, and they're supporting that system, they're providing information or 
the bringing it out of it. Uh, how do they do that every day? Uh, how do the people who work at NSA, who are turning that huge electronic apparatus of, of, of surveillance on their neighbors and their friends, how, where's their conscience? And then I, I realized this is a perfect example of the Milgram uh, experiment at work. Uh, they're, they're, they're under authority figures. What they're doing is they are... They not they haven't lost their conscience. They have given their conscience to another agent, and so they feel very comfortable in doing it. in studio by John Dean. He's former White House counsel in the Nixon administration. He's now a columnist for findlaw.com. He's the author of several books, uh, the latest of which is Conservatives Without Conscience. It comes out or it came out officially last night. John Dean joins us live in studio this morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Um, what's a conservative without conscience? <laughs> uh, it only took me 200-some pages to explain that. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I shouldn't ask you to sum it up. I mean, it's obviously, it's the, the Conscience of a Conservative is the famous book by, by Barry Goldwater. And you originally started working on this book with Barry Goldwater before his declining health and right. later his death made that continued uh, collaboration impossible. Do you see this as um, kind of showing the difference between Goldwater conservatives and the conservatives of today? Well, one of the things, to go back to your original question, what is a conservative without conscience? Uh, when doing this project, which started, as you say, with Senator Goldwater, what we were trying to find is the answer as to why the conservative movement was moving in the direction that it was. He was very upset about the, the fact that they had uh, uh, sold their soul to the religious right. He thought that was a very troublesome potential, but he was also really worried about the incivility, even in 1994, when we started looking at this. You know, why were these people doing it? Uh, one of the thought, thoughts he had was <clears throat> because these people had a conscience other than any sort of political conscience, maybe their religious belief or what have you, uh, that they were operating on some plane he didn't understand. Hmm. And that's where we, in, in, con in conversation, we came up with the title that there's something wrong with the conservative conscience. And that's why we came up with the fact there was a uh, there, there were those without, because mm -hmm. uh, he did define indeed what he believed the conservative conscience was, and he saw uh, that uh, definition long dead. As I say in one part of the book, uh, Goldwater Conservative, RIP, uh, mm -hmm. they're no longer in existence. So, uh, do you still think of yourself as a Goldwater conservative? I do. Yeah. I do. On on many issues, I I, I certainly find that's where I am philosophically. I uh, <laughs> I haven't really changed my feelings and beliefs much in 40 years, but I now find myself well left of center hmm. by just staying where I was because the Republican Party has moved so far to the right. Indeed, politics have moved so far to the right. 
Do you feel that the tenets of what's important to a Goldwater conservative, the things that made you uh, realize the, uh, yourself as a, you're kind of awakening as a conservative, uh, as a young man, do you feel like those tenets are now being embraced by elements of the Democratic Party, or do you feel like they're gone entirely? No, I think you're right. I think you put your finger on something. The, the You know, one of the things that uh, the senator always said uh, is that, you know, the question of the dignity of human beings was mm-hmm. very important to him. He's somebody who led the fight, for example, in Arizona to integrate the National Guard. Uh, yet he was really seen as a result of 64 and his vote on the on the 64 Civil Rights Act as being something of a racist. It couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, uh, here was a man who, when I pressed him once uh, years after the fact about this question about uh, conservatives really being the antithesis, antithesis of equality, mm-hmm. he said, well, yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's the, 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 the people who don't run for anything. Uh, hmm. and, and he was always felt uh, just the opposite. That uh, I said, well, what about uh, uh, the poor? Aren't they somebody who are getting an unequal shake? He said, yes. And he said, if family, friends, church, community can't take care of them, uh, that's when the higher levels of government must move in. So a lot of people misread his philosophy and who he was and where he was coming from. And I think much of that, to come back to your question, is something that the Democrats today have long been with, and they've sort of moved a little bit more to the center uh, and these are issues they're pursuing. Well, it's interesting because to have a debate about conservative principles as defined by Barry Goldwater, um, have a debate about those principles right now in current political terms is almost impossible because the language about things like the faith-based, faith-based initiative and the way that the, the, the language even of the civil rights movement has been so completely twisted and morphed by the Republican Party to talk about things now like the dissolution of the, the wall between church and state and things like that, it's almost become impossible to talk about it. And it, we're, we're at a point where I, as a, a, a liberaler than thou liberal, ser- seriously off the charts on the left of the political spectrum right now is how I see myself. To be able to talk to you, somebody who identifies yourself as a Goldwater conservative, for us to see eye to eye on most issues right. tells you how perverse the idea of conservatism, uh, how twisted it's become from what it was Within your lifetime, in the well, last 30 I, I spent a lot of time in the book because one of the first things I thought I needed to do was explain conservatism to people because it's, it's very complex. Uh, it is not easily understood. I'm somebody who has been in varying degrees with and in and out of the movement from its inception. Mm-hmm. And uh, not even conservatives today really understand their movement. They don't know how... Uh, the different factions uh, relate. Uh, yes, there are some who live and breathe this stuff who are into it and are steeped in it, but most the average uh, person who is a, calls himself a conservative, you press him on, well, what exactly are your beliefs? And you'll get uh, typically an explanation of policy rather than uh, sort of fundamental thinking. Mm-hmm. Well, you use the, you use the A word. You use the authoritarian word. Um, you talk about authoritarianism emerging within the current brand <clears throat> of conservatism that's ascendant in the Republican Party, the Bush, Repu- Bush Cheney Republicanism really being authoritarian. And there's almost um, th- there's nothing less traditionally conservative than that, although that's the way that it's played well, out. It, it, uh, it, since, I mean, that's the way it played out, certainly in the Nixon administration, right. of which you were a part, and that's the way it's playing out now. How did that happen? And does anybody claim that? Or, does, or, or is, that, is that still seen as an epithet? Uh, I, I don't believe it. I believe it's descriptive. I don't think it's pejorative. I think mm-hmm. it's totally descriptive of the situation. And what happened is when I went out looking for answers, I couldn't find them. And then I ran into a huge body of research that I didn't even know existed, 
relating to authoritarianism. And it's really 50 years of work. Mm-hmm. And, the, the, and the, the understanding of authoritarianism doesn't come from social scientists trying to label people. It comes from what conservatives or authoritarians have explained their thinking and their philosophy to be. There are really two types of authoritarians, and uh, those who, who follow leaders who are authoritarian and, of course, the leaders. The greatest majority of authoritarians are what they call right-wing authoritarian followers. these studies started really post-World War II when, when uh, social scientists said, hey, why are the Italians and the Germans, uh, why did they do what they did? Why did they get caught up following Mussolini and Hitler? What's the explanation? What, what, uh, how could a collective society lose its, uh, its conscience, mm-hmm. if you will, and follow these people? And this is where the research started. It has become much more refined. Uh, and what I found striking is these people have written uh, a lot of material about it. They write for each other as, as professional peers, and nobody has translated it for the general reader. That's what hmm. I tried to do when I got into this. I said, I said, this answers so many questions I've had about conservatism that I've never known how to explain or how to understand. And it's this body of information that's been sitting there, and I'm indeed encouraging academics to share this stuff, get it out of the uh, uh, the, the jargon and the professional journals. I had to get out uh, a uh, to, to refresh my recollection of statistics, for example. I had to get the, the idiot's guide out because mm-hmm. uh, you know the average person doesn't want to wade through this, and I didn't want to deal with the jargon, so I wanted to bring it down. So uh, the com- I think if the American voter doesn't understand the fact that conservatism has been captured by authoritarians. Uh, they don't understand the movement and its implications, and it's very troubling. I found it very interesting to tie the idea of the rise of authoritarianism within re- American Republican Party, the, the American Republican Party, to tie that to something else that you've written a lot about, which is secrecy. Yes. And the idea that in authoritarian governments, you've got governments having a lot of access about their citizens, citizens having almost no information about their government, as opposed to a, a democratic government where government has very limited information about its citizens, but citizens have a lot of transparent access to their government, and you see these these these, these rise, the rise and fall of inf- uh, of the information balance in this administration in a way that I don't even think has really been put in ideological terms. But that's really happened. That's what Dick Cheney, in particular, has really pushed for: secrecy in the administration and a maximization of the amount of information they have about us, the elimination of our privacy rights. That's political. That's not just a tactic. Cheney is. What they call in the social scientists is a classic uh, double high. Uh, the meaning by that, he would score and would score very highly as both a an authoritarian follower mm-hmm. and an authoritarian leader. That seems like a, a, a you know it doesn't seem to be uh, to fit. What happens is the. Uh, the people who score high on both, when they answer the questions about being a follower, they see themselves running the world, mm-hmm. and how they, these are this, that's the only way they can perceive the world. Yeah. Uh, and this is a very dangerous person. It's, it's somebody who's totally immoral, uh, self-justifying, self. Uh, 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 
propelling, very aggressive in their undertakings. It's really quite startling. The idea that, you know, most of the public doesn't really understand this stuff. The elites need to really take care of this information. We need to, we can operate more efficiently if we keep things secretive and keep the information from the people who don't understand it and don't know what to do. I had a wonderful quote, which I used in this book, which I actually discovered when working on uh, Worse Than Watergate, uh, The Secret Presidency of George Bush, that explains that this is a very typical thing of authoritarian governments is secrecy. Mm -hmm. And I really hadn't grasped the full concept at that point. Uh, But it truly is one of the addition of of an authoritarian government. And uh, uh, the Bush-Cheney people have done it in spades. In case you're just joining us, our guest is John Dean, who's the author most recently of Conservatives Without Conscience. We don't have much time left. I do just have one other question for you. And after Watergate, uh, you served time in prison for your role uh, related to... The, Actually, the I never got to prison. Never got to prison. You were sentenced. I, w- I, went to, I was in a witness protection program. They were trying to keep me alive in those days. Your role in the Watergate scandal gives you... Um, uh, gives you a, a unique perspective on what's going on today, and you yourself has been one of the loudest voices proclaiming the parallels between what was wrong with the Nixon administration and what's wrong with George W. Bush administration. Who do you think is going to bring the hammer down on the overreaching and, and illegal behavior and ideological extremism of this administration? What do you think is going to do it? I'm hopeful by writing a book like conservatives without conscience, that people will understand what authoritarianism is doing. They are people you really can't uh, reprogram. They have their way. They're going to do it their way. They're not likely to change. So if we don't understand them and where they're headed, and it's not very attractive where they're headed, uh, we're in trouble. So uh, the, the hammer will be brought down by the American people when they understand what's going on. John Dean is our guest. The book is Conservatives Without Conscience. It is uh, rocketed up to number three on Amazon right now. Right. You can buy it from our website, MaddoOnline.com. Guaranteed to make a lot of people in Washington very mad uh, and a lot of people who read it around the country a lot smarter and, in my case, significantly more scared. Thank you for writing it. Thanks for coming in today. Pleasure, always.
And welcome back. 21 minutes past the hour. Tom Hartman here with you. We're talking with John Dean, White House legal counsel to President Nixon for a thousand days, also served as chief minority counsel for the House Judiciary Committee, associate deputy attorney general in the U.S. Department of Justice, the author of Worse Than Watergate, uh, Blind Ambition, Lost Honor, The Rehnquist Choice, Warren G. Harding, and his new book, Conservatives Without Conscience. Uh, John Dean, the, the the little bump there, bumper music from, from um, Bob Dylan's uh, brief flirtation with fundamentalist Christianity, you're going to have to serve somebody, really kind of encapsulates the personality that you're talking about in these conservatives without conscience. Not to not to put the point on, on Bob Dylan, but uh, the, the idea of a dominance and submission. Absolutely. Uh, when the religious right became increasingly active uh, in conservative politics, that's when I really see the growth of authoritarianism within the movement. There's authoritarianism break, excuse me, authoritarianism breaks down into two segments. You have leaders, of course, and but the bulk are the followers. Uh, most of the scientific work over the years, for about the last 50 years, has been done on the followers and only in the last 10 years on the leaders. But we have this amazing body of empirical evidence developed by largely through anonymous testing of people to get their reactions and explanations of their behavior. Uh, the religious right uh, constantly uh, scores very high on authoritarian scales. Now, one of the things that that you you suggest in the book is that uh, uh, author, submissive authoritarian behavior those people who uh, were the good germans shall we say you know back in the 30s um, uh, that that can be evoked from people who might not otherwise normally display that if they find themselves in an environment with a powerful authoritarian leader and particularly if that's in combination with an environment where they experience fear anxiety. Absolutely. In fact, there was data on that before 9-11. There's new data post-9-11 that shows large numbers of people, because of fear, uh, became active in the Republican Party and became active in the conservative movement because they found comfort and security and a feeling of safety uh, under authoritarian leadership. So it's been demonstrated lately, and of course what the Bush people discovered, uh, they either found this from their own polling or social scientists tipped them off, uh, it became a very effective political tool. They have been fear-mongering ever since 9-11, trying to keep the uh, the base in line and keep and grow the ranks, and it's worked. This, yeah, the Republican Party has been playing this like a fiddle, and, and in a way they're actually increasing the number of authoritarian followers in the United States by bringing this out in people. Absolutely true. Uh, one of the reasons I did this book is there's about the, the hardcore right now is about 23% that would, would follow uh, an authority anywhere that authority took them. Uh, there are obviously more than that because it takes more than that to, to win control of the White House, for example. But uh, you still you have that hardcore, and that, but that number is constantly increasing, and the fear-mongering is one of the contributing factors. So what do we do about that? I think the answer is 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 to be aware of it. A lot of people, uh, for example, in in the area of, of what frightens them, they really don't think about 
how this is really playing right in the hands of terrorists. And they don't look at the statistical realities of terrorism. They just react to it viscerally and don't look at the fact that there are more drownings in the United States every year than there are likely to be anybody killed from a terrorist. Yeah, there are more are drunk drivers. Uh, industrial accidents, drunk drivers. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole host of things that are much more uh, threatening to our lives than terrorism. Uh, the Cold War and, 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 and nuclear annihilation was certainly much more threatening than uh, the worst of the terrorists. Yeah. Uh, you know, even even let's say a worst case with someone got one or two uh, WMDs. They, it's not the same as the Soviet Union getting ready to wipe us off the face of the planet. And yet we have, and we only have a, a, about a minute and a half left here, I'm sorry, but we have a media that is completely driven by getting eyeballs, by ratings. And, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. What do we do in a media environment like this where we get infotainment instead of news? How do we change that? Well, I think somewhat the, the Internet is changing that. People are able to get out and get more information independently. Obviously, readers and book, uh, books are a help. Uh, but the great, the, the great middle of America uh, and, and the center is part of our nation. If they're sleeping, uh, the danger is that the, uh, this extremism on the on the right is going to keep creeping, and that's proto-fascist conduct. And we're not on that road yet, but we're so dangerously close to it uh, that we have to be very careful. Do you think? I mean, there's and I'm and I'm no alarmist. Believe me, I, I understand. Um, these folks, the ends justify the means. Stealing elections. I mean, is this a very real risk? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, vigilance is the only way that, uh, uh, that we are all protected. And there's a, there's a wonderful, you know, there's a, a wonderful yin-yang in our system. And uh, hopefully uh, the pendulum will swing. Yeah, hopefully. Thanks for listening, everybody. We had big news at the end of last week's, uh, you know, during the hiatus, and if you missed it at the end of uh, Friday's rerun, I did mention the big announcement is that the Best of the Left did in fact get nominated for a podcast award in the politics section, and that's all thanks to you guys for nominating me, so thank you very much for that. The real good news is that all of the other shows in the category are so far head and shoulders above where I'm at right now that I shouldn't even have the the faintest glimmer of a hope of winning. But on the other hand, chances are, are very good that uh, all of them will have far too much pride to even ask for votes. So I may just be the big uh, uh, swoop in from behind upset win. Um, you never know. I mean, of course, I won't be upsetting anyone. They probably don't even notice what's going on it's not like it's going to ruin barack obama's day when uh when he doesn't get the podcast award but you you know what i mean anyways and then of course the spooky thing is that the president's weekly radio address was also nominated in the same category so what we have here is the classic good versus evil versus good versus good versus uh, a show i've never heard of before scenario and uh, and so the point is that you can go to bestoftheleftpodcast.com and get all the information for voting and um 
it, it runs from last Friday through August 11th. So two weeks straight, and you can vote every day if you like. And uh, all of your support is greatly appreciated. I've got plenty more to say. Lots of stuff happened over the week. Big updates and upgrades and all sorts of crazy things. i got to wrap it up for now. I'll talk to you all tomorrow. Have a good one, everybody. Terrorism is the calculated use of violence or threat of violence to attain goals that are political, religious, or ideological in nature. It follows that the United States is a leading terror state. As the Bush regime continues its war on democracy, log on to thewarondemocracy.com to find out what you can do to fight back. The war on democracy.